Welcome to Santa Barbara Talks with Josh Molina. It's such a pleasure today to be here with somebody I've known for a long time, have a lot of respect for, somebody who's really important and integral in the community. And uh, I just had a, the privilege of knowing him in all of his various roles. And we're going to talk about everything today. John Tyne, attorney John Tyne, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you, Josh. It's always nice to see you. So I hope you're well. Yeah, thank you. We haven't really talked in a while, but um, I always enjoy when I run into you or we have coffee or something. We make time to have a conversation because you're everywhere <laughs> and you have this great reputation in town and you do all these things in the community. And you are an attorney, you're a teacher, you're a residential, you know, real estate broker, you sell homes. You're a pundit, you know, you're, you're everywhere. And so you commercial real estate, you know, Nick Welch uh, paid me a, a compliment, I think, in a recent article where he said the most ubiquitous person in Santa Barbara. I thought that was a nice <laughs> way to say it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I served as president of the University Club for many years. I'm still on that board. I'm uh, the CFO of 1805, uh, which is a local nonprofit for first responders. And we're getting ready to do our big festival on november 17th which is exciting and you know just a, another big commitment right now but things are great that's great yeah uh it's, it's just a pleasure to be able to have this talk it's long overdue so let's dive in john uh recently sure. i wrote a, a story a little short story about your move downtown and you've experienced an expansion so can you talk a little bit about about you i mean i think that a while ago you you know you were the the residential real estate, commercial real estate guy, the broker, yeah. you have your own firm too. Talk to me about John Tyne, the attorney and all the worlds you're involved with right now. Sure. Um, so yeah, for uh, many, many years, um, Kevin Goodwin and I, Goodwin and Tyne Properties, we have the building over at 2000 State Street right there at the corner of State Mission. Uh, and in that building, we were housing uh, Goodwin and Time Properties, our, our real estate brokerage, which does, as you say, residential and commercial real estate throughout uh, Santa Barbara County and really all the way down to L.A. and all the way up to San Luis Obispo. We're sort of Central Coast centric. Uh, and we also had the law offices, John J. Time III there. And over the years, both organizations have kind of continued to grow. And Goodwin and Time Properties has gone from two agents, Goodwin and Tyne. Uh, to 16 agents now that are in Santa Barbara. We have agents in LA, we have agents in other areas, but in Santa Barbara, we have 16 agents. Meanwhile, the law office is John J. Time III grew and we had four lawyers there, uh, myself, Justin Fox, Lacey Taylor, and Jerry Howard. Uh, and so things were getting a little bit tight in uh, in that location. So I did last July come down to a block from the courthouse and I made my associate attorneys partners. And so we now have a law firm called Tyne Taylor Fox Howard LLP. Uh, and that is located at um, 205 East Carrillo Street. So we're at the corner of Carrillo and Santa Barbara. And we still have Goodwin and Tyne properties over at 2000 uh, State Street. So I could, uh, sort of run between the two offices, but thank God for Zoom, uh, right. which makes that travel a little bit easier uh, today. So yes, we, we're very much enjoying the new office, um, but we still have both companies going in, in full steam ahead. Great. I want to talk about your attorney work in a second, but let's talk about your expertise in residential and commercial 
real estate. And we'll start with residential. As we know, in the last year, since the pandemic, year and a half, the residential real estate market has has boomed. If you own a house, it's, you know, the, the value of it has been soaring. And um, we're seeing sort of that not being affected negatively by the pandemic. In fact, quite the inverse. So can you talk a little bit about where we at today with that residential real estate boom and, and what's ahead and what are the factors there? Absolutely. So uh, yes, you're absolutely correct. During the pandemic, we saw a, a major uh, explosion in residential real estate in Santa Barbara. Um, the house values went up precipitously throughout the uh, the pandemic and, and after, uh, to the extent we are after the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really reached an apex, um, I would say, in about April or May of this year. Uh, in April, May, we had our lowest number of days on market for sold real estate. I'm just kind of looking at the stats here. Uh, our absorption rate was was um, very fast. Um, things were staying on the market for, for less than 30 days. Um, in fact, the number of days on market had dipped down to its lowest point. Um, we were seeing multiple offers on every listing. It really didn't matter. Uh, where the listing was in price, whether it was $15 million or it was $1.2 million. Uh, It didn't matter where it was geographically, if it was in San Roque or if it was in uh, Montecito. Uh, It was just just almost too much. I think anybody who was involved as a real estate broker uh, or agent in the residential real estate market in Santa Barbara over the last two years will tell you that they have probably worked more than ever in their career uh, and each transaction would have multiple, multiple offers and they would come in. I, I'm thinking of one in particular, we had sold a house for, uh, to a client who had an intention of improving it and, and selling it later. And she'd bought the house for about a thousand dollars a square foot on Chapala street, 1.495, you know, it was about a 1,489 square foot home on Chapala street a year ago had completely renovated, put a lot of money into it, made it absolutely stunningly beautiful, but didn't increase the square footage. Uh, it just made a beautiful, beautiful house and uh, put it back on the market in February. And it sold immediately for $1,850 a square foot um, on Chapala between Constance and and uh, Mission. So, hmm. I mean, it's just, you know, it was, it was a bit daunting to see prices like that here in town. And there's a positive side of that. And of course, a negative side of that. Uh, Your question though was, where are we now? Mm -hmm. And so since April and May, we have seen a little bit of, uh, I would say, thinking about a a baseball, if you were to throw baseball in the air, that's kind of been our residential market here for the last two years. The baseball has just been flying up into the air. And right now where we are is the baseball is sort of suspended in flight, right? Mm-hmm. We're, we're seeing uh, days on market sort of increase in some listings. We're seeing um, prices start to come down a little bit on list prices or asking prices. So we're not in a correction right now, I wouldn't say. Um, but what we are seeing is through the market itself, if you bring a property market that is very fairly priced in a desirable neighborhood in good condition, it's still going to sell immediately. And for more than probably you ever would have imagined just even 
six to eight months ago, uh, and certainly more than two years ago. Uh, but it's the properties that the sellers have been kind of pushing the price a little too high, or maybe they're not in as great a condition. Uh, they We are starting to see now that those homes, while they would have sold in May immediately, they are taking a little bit longer now to, to get through the system and to sell. Though I would tell you, it's still a very hot, hot market right now. And why was that? Were, were people looking to get out of LA or these second homes? Uh, what were the factors? Why was there all of a sudden an even greater interest in buying in Santa Barbara? It's it's a really great question. Um, lots of factors went into it, right? There was a lot of pent up demand because after the pandemic began, there was an initial pullback. Everybody was sort of just staying at home and laying low and trying to figure out what this, this global pandemic was going to look like to them personally. Um, There's a lot of fear. Uh, so there was a bit of pent up demand to begin with. You know, historically, our market is generally about 75% local. Right, seventy-five percent of our transactions normally in a, in a typical market are going to be sold to people who are moving across town or who are having life changes, divorces, deaths, things of that nature, uh, and are making a change within the town. And twenty-five percent of our market generally comes from out of the area, of which the vast majority was coming from Los Angeles and the surrounding areas. Over the past two years, we've seen a little bit of a shift in that, where only about sixty percent of our transactions have been purely local. 40% being from out of the area. And of that 40, a lesser amount was coming from LA than historically. And so we've seen an influx really into Santa Barbara and particularly into Montecito uh, of people from all over the country um, and uh, the world, actually, all over the world, particularly, you know, the, uh, the prince uh, um, from England. And so we've seen people from all over the globe come here. And so Santa Barbara is a very desirable uh, market. It, it was actually the market in California that increased the most during the pandemic. Um, uh, there was money that was readily available to some buyers that wasn't historically there. We had a lot of government programs that, you know, pushed money into the, mm. the, um, the economy and some of that money percolated to the top, if you will. And so it afforded some people an opportunity to move to Santa Barbara, something they've always wanted to do. Um, and so there was no better time for them. Uh, the stock market, of course, was performing exceptionally well and people were making a great deal of money by trading there and having the ability to buy in Santa Barbara. So there were a number of factors that have gone into this um, this robust market that we've seen. Yeah. I want to ask you about uh, renting in a second, but while we're on home buying. I wanted to ask you about what I wrote about, which has been controversial in the news, this company called Picasso that is facilitating people buying um, not fractional ownership, but, um, you know, buying an eighth of ownership of a home and um, their second homes. So people can be here a certain amount of days a year and they share that with other people. And there's at least one community that we know of uh, up on the Riviera that is very upset about this because it's um, not your typical neighbor, they would say, and it lends itself to people moving in who aren't necessarily invested in the community. But this Picasso company's got a lot of attention for what they're doing in other communities and praised to some degree for being 
innovative and figuring out a way to say, well, rather than having this place just sort of uh, vacant most of the year and some family using it for you know three months, it's going to be occupied by multiple families throughout the year. And that's a way of not having a house sitting vacant. So there's there's lots of ways to sort of interpret this. But I was sort of interested in your thoughts on on that idea of a company facilitating buying second homes and what that means to a community. And it is fractional ownership, actually. It, it truly is. That's that's what their their business is structured on. I, I think they create an LLC and the LLC owns property and then people buy into the LLC. Oh yeah, I'm sorry. It's not timeshares. That's it's what not they were time saying. Share, right, right, but yeah. it is fractional ownership, yeah. and which which is a distinction actually that they are in fact invested in the community in a sense because they are owners of that property. You know, there's there's two side two sides of every coin, right? When condominiums were first popular in in America, there was a lot of pushback on that. People thought that that was a, a crazy avant-garde sort of uh, different way to own property and they pushed back on it. Uh, we had had co-ops prior to that, you know, which was more similar to a fractional ownership. Uh, and, and condominiums really are essentially fractional ownership, at least of the common areas. And then there's individual ownership of the individual units. And so, uh, you know, I think people fear change. People inherently just see something new and they get concerned by it and there's an initial uh, pushback. But I think that the point is well taken that this can be very, very positive uh, for communities. And if you were to have, say, eight buyers uh, in the $1.5 million range who were all able to buy uh, a second home in Santa Barbara for the purposes of staying there throughout the year, but not all year long, uh, there are eight homes that might come off the market in a part of the market that is really one where there's a lot of competition and a lot of need with younger families or with uh, folks who aren't in that that upper echelon in terms of pricing. Whereas if you took those same eight individuals and you pulled their resources together and you had them buy a house um that was far more expensive. And again, not necessarily a home that, that the people who are competing in that price range would be trying to purchase themselves. And to your point, a home that now would be occupied all of the year, at least the vast majority of the year, there's a lot of reasons to say that's a better approach and that that is innovative. And obviously, um, to the extent it creates uh, opportunities to uh, take those homes that otherwise are being underused and to sell them to this group of individuals uh, who come in and buy them, that generates tax revenue for the county and for the city um, that, that might not be gained. You have a home that's sitting there, maybe has been owned for decades and is at a very low property tax rate. And then it gets sold to this company or to this group of individuals um, that creates a, a reassessment and that uh, taxes that home at a highly inflated rate um, compared to what what it was bringing in terms of property taxes. And so, you know, I, I think that the argument that, oh, well, this is going to be people that are on vacation all the time. Like, yes, the home will be occupied all year, but it'll be occupied by uh, partiers. <laughs> right. Yeah. Partiers, if you will. And uh, and I've read that article about the alleged party that occurred and the, the, the 
the other side of that saying, well, it was our daughter's 21st birthday and we had the music off by 9 p.m. and, and all that. Um, you know, there are rules and laws that will apply to that. It doesn't have to be a home that uh, is fractional ownership to, to have a problem occupant, right? We, I have plenty of cases that involve neighbors who, who act badly uh, that have owned their home for decades, you know? <laughs> and so I, I'm not certain that that is a, um, that there's any more likelihood that there'll be a problem just because there's a fractional ownership. The argument could be made that they, you know, this is something they work toward in their life and they're really happy to uh, acquire it and they treat it very well. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I, I think there's both sides to the coin. Personally, I think it's not a bad um way to to trade property and it allows it actually pushes these people into an area in the market that has less competition and that that isn't taking away eight homes from the part of the market where we really need inventory so yeah that's that's a good point is that could be a, a these people could have bought eight other homes and then you have eight neighborhoods that potentially could be adversely impacted yeah you know so that's what it is and of course there's always that thing of people complaining who have homes that other people can't exercise some form of property rights you know it's sort of like well just because you have yours doesn't mean other people can't try to do their best to have theirs too as long as they're doing it the right way so that's always you know that's the Santa Barbara story right everybody wants new housing NIMBY. Nobody wants it near them, you know. So. Yeah. Um, but along those lines, let's talk about residential in Santa Barbara. Of course, there was that proposal for um, rent stabilization, I think is what they were calling it. Others were calling it rent control, but it was essentially putting a cap on how much that the owners could raise uh, properties, rate raise rents. And that, of course, gets people all worked up because Santa Barbara is in this place of there's not enough housing for everybody who works here. The state is increasingly putting demands on the city. They have to zone for 8,001 units by 2031 or something. And they have to build them, but they got to say, you know, here's where they could go. And so there's all these things going on. What about the, uh, the state went further, right? With Senate Bill 9 and Senate Bill 10, where they've essentially done away with single family zoning in oh, yeah, yeah. California, where they've said, look, if you own uh, a an R1 property, you now have the ability to subdivide that pro that property as long as the two resulting lots are at least 40% of the original lot. In other words, you can do a 60-40 split, you can do a 50-50 split, you could not do an 80-20 or a 90 10 you know or something of that nature uh and then once you've done that you can build a main home and an adu on each of the lots and so you're turning an r1 uh property into four different units uh on a residential lot uh and the state has mandated that and made it ministerial review uh, and cities and counties uh essentially can't push back on that and there's restrictions on how far a setback could be so it can only be four feet now instead of five or 10 or, or more. And there's a lot of misunderstanding about that. People assume, oh, well, Santa Barbara's kind of exempt because there's this um, part of the law that talks about high fire zones and we're all in a high fire zone here. And so we're exempt. That's not correct. If you look at that part of the law closely, it actually says, yeah, high fire zones are exempted unless the community has adopted a mitigation strategy, which we have. Mm. And so that's not an exemption for Santa Barbara from, from these rules. 
Uh, so there is that. There is, you know, of course, there's there's people trying to cap rents. It is well intentioned. It never ever works. It just doesn't work. Um, uh, and and that's unfortunate. The reality of the situation is most of my clients who are landlords uh, have not raised rents on on their tenants for for years and years and years, and are only doing so now because they're saying, "Well, we can't afford to fall behind." Mm. Uh, and, and make our property less valuable because we're not at market rents anymore. So now they're being told, well, you can only go 2% plus CPI or 5% plus CPI and capped at 10%. Well, that has been largely uh, a toothless tiger because CPI has come up so much now, right? And so in essence, uh, today, uh, it's all 10%, right? You can go up 10% per year, basically. On uh, and there's lots of exceptions and there's a lot of nuances that we can't really get into. I did see your interview with uh, Peter, mm-hmm. uh, which was outstanding. Peter Rupert, yeah, issue. yeah Peter Rupert, and uh, just excellent. I mean, excellent analysis. But but the reality of the situation is, it just doesn't work. Yeah. It, it disincentivizes uh, maintenance of properties and improving properties because. Now you you you're capping the amount of money that that property can generate, so you have less money to improve the property, and uh, and there's all sorts of there's all sorts of reasons. That's that's a much longer conversation. So, what do you think of the city's affordable housing strategy? And I'm not talking about um, the housing authority and what they call the capital A traditional uh, affordable housing, but their efforts to create AUD units, give developers higher density. Hopefully they'll build more smaller units, which will be rented at something less expensive than something big and it's below market. Of course, there's much controversy about that because even if they're small, they're going to go for several thousand dollars a month, you know, in rent. Um, you know, if you were mayor, if you were, you know, the, the community development director, you were directly influencing these things you know what would you say is like what's the best way to build housing for for the middle you know the people who aren't rich that answer i should be mayor or president (laughs) (laughs) right Uh, that is our challenge isn't it i mean santa barbara just we don't have more land we don't have an opportunity to just throw up these these large um moderate income housing projects that will allow some relief in that part of the market that is so overburdened right now and so infill projects have been uh, the AUD that you referred to not to be confused by ADU which is the state sort of uh, answer to that which is a similar concept which is higher density as you've just indicated um you know I don't know that it's a that it's a Rubik's cube that's ever going to be solved in Santa Barbara, right? I, I, because there's the other argument that, well, if you build it, they will come, you know, um, um, that the more affordable housing that we have here, the more, more people will move here, the more tax and uh, or the more burden we'll have on, on our community, the less like Santa Barbara it will feel because we become particularly dense, uh, which is one of the things that people love about this community is that it's not like that. Uh, which I think is why people push back a lot on this um, uh, Senate Bill 8 and uh, Senate Bill 9 and 10 with the IADUs. You know, the answer is obviously it is a supply and demand uh, conundrum. You have more demand, 
then we have supply. And there's two ways to address that. One, reduce the demand, which we've sort of done, right, um, over the years by not having huge industries here in town. We haven't historically had uh, big industries for people to come to Santa Barbara to work in, right? There's not, it's not a place that people think of first when they say, oh, I need a job, I'll apply to Santa Barbara. Right. In fact, if anything, we have trouble recruiting people uh, for positions here. I certainly have had trouble recruiting people, despite the fact that I did finally successfully hire another attorney, which is good. So we're at six. But uh, housing is hard. Right. And unless the employer is providing the housing, it, it is tough to recruit people out of town here. Uh, you'll have to pay them enough to sustain themselves with housing. Um, so one way that we've dealt with it is we've sort of tried to stifle the demand by really not being a magnet uh, for business and things of that nature. And then the other answer, of course, that you're talking about the supply side of things is to build more stock, have more housing stock. And that's, I think, why the city cracks down on short-term rentals a lot, uh, why they are um, trying to incentivize people to uh, not have empty buildings or empty homes and all that. Uh, but it's it's been interesting to watch, right? It's a it's an issue with a lot of emotion, uh, not just on two sides, but on you know multifaceted issue. Because uh, the less housing you have, the more people commute, so that's a bigger impact on the environment. But but the more density you have, that also creates more of an impact on our local environment. And so it's just it's a tough tough question. I would you know I support having affordable housing. I have found that the the way that I've seen it work best is in public private partnerships where the city has gotten together with maybe developers and investors and has developed things like Casa Fuentes over on uh, Carrillo, where you you have the city get involved in in creating affordable uh, housing and you incentivize the investors and you incentivize the developers to participate with you and then the city sort of controls it and makes sure that it goes to truly moderate income individuals so that's the thing i've seen work best is public private collaboration downtown state street <laughs> promenade uh you know cars bikes pedestrians Right. Right now, we know they're watching. Well, I mean, I'm right here. Right? You're right there, right? Two blocks away. Um, what do you, you know, what's the solution for us? Do you like, do you like how it looks downtown? Do you want to wait 12 years for the master plan to be done? That's an know, exaggeration. I, I'm what do you a think? fan of the, of the promenade, to be honest with you. Uh, you know, I've been here now uh, 23 years uh, in Santa Barbara. I moved here in 1999. I used to love spending a lot of time on State Street and did. For many, many years. And then when we had our economic calamity globally, um, state street stores suffered a bit. You recall all the stories that ran about vacant uh, storefronts and things of that nature. We had some challenges with homelessness and things of that nature. And I do think that the promenade, to use that term, uh, has brought people back downtown, has brought families, has brought uh, visitors, has brought um, even I would say locals who may not have been on State Street for, for years have come down and, and found themselves enjoying our, what we have to offer, right? We have this beautiful European downtown look with a, a climate that is envied, the envy of the world. Uh, and and so I didn't think that, that 
having the cars back and forth on State Street be because we didn't have parking for those vehicles, right? So you can go to some communities, uh, Glendale, I was in this past weekend, really cute, you know, downtown areas where they have a main drag, if you will, and there's lots of nice shops along the way. You have retail, you have bakeries, you have restaurants, you have uh, services, hair, you know, hair, um, barbers and, and hairdressers and the like, uh, manicurists. And they have parking in front of those those businesses. And so there it makes sense, right, to have the, the street open to vehicles because those cars will come. They can park and folks can go right in and enjoy the services and maybe walk a couple blocks of that. We've never really on State Street had that, right? We've never really had anywhere that you could park on State Street. You'd have to go to Paseo Nuevo and park in the garage there, or you'd be parking on the arteries outside of State Street. So not, we haven't had much of a change other than maybe the path of travel for vehicles, but the fundamental experience isn't much different because you would have been parking somewhere else and walking to State Street to walk on State Street, right? To go to these shops anyway. So I, I personally embrace it. I like it. Uh, I know, I don't think Randy's as big a fan of it. I think he, <laughs> he wants like to clean to, underneath there. There's those ver, vermin problems. Yeah, I would like to maybe, you know, uh, bring it in a couple blocks yeah. is what I understand. But I think the overall that the council likes what they see. And I will just tell you as a citizen walking around State Street, uh, I've enjoyed seeing the bikes instead of the cars, you know, seeing the pedestrians instead of the vehicles. So... Yeah, and that 500 block is, you know, to your tourist, I don't think there's anybody coming and saying, oh, this looks awful. I think they're like, wow, there's so much cool stuff to do. There's so many places to eat and it's vibrant, right. you know, and of course the local 500 block you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's rest. Yeah, the 500 block with all the restaurants, you know, I think people who go down there are like, wow, this is fun. Um, yes, from an aesthetic perspective and the HLC, there's some things that that you know need to be done you know from a santa barbara standard but you know i'm not down there much but when i'm down there everyone seems to be having a really good time yeah yona reds with their queso tacos down there you know 532 state street how do you go wrong right exactly yeah he's it's doing awesome. great he's yeah. doing great hey uh, let's it's, talk it's a great story isn't it i mean so there's a perfect example so 532 state street for many many years uh had been the zia cafe you know for decades uh, and then there was a transfer of ownership between the spouses and um, one of the spouses opened a new restaurant called Verve, I think it was uh, uh, there. And then ultimately a steakhouse, you know, is what he was operating there. And then he had a French um, um, concept come in and they were doing wine and cheese and things like that. And it just wasn't catching on. It wasn't catching fire. And then when the promenade came, we had a local guy who had been selling queso tacos from a cart, you know, for years, everybody loved them. Everybody supported him. They encouraged him to go out and to get a physical location. He opens up at 532 State Street, Yona Reds, and he's doing amazing, yeah. right? He's doing great. Visitors and locals alike will come down and, and you do have a parking lot right back behind there. Um, and so, yeah, it's a great example of uh, a building that otherwise wasn't really functioning all that well that now is is a hotspot of sorts. 
Yeah, it's a good success story. And, you know, I know the landlord there has been working well, you know, and sort of being flexible, and at least at yeah. the beginning. And that's what you need to do. You want good tenants, you need to work with them on, well, how do we make this work as opposed to, you know, some of these places sitting vacant for <laughs> forever, you know, so I think it pays to have a local owner in that case of that building. Certainly. Hey, John, let's talk about uh, some of your law work. And, um, I'll just sort of lay it on the line a little bit here. You know, you recently represented Christy Lozano to get in the, her efforts to get on the ballot after there was a rather, you know, and I mean, this is no surprise, very foolish challenge to her politically foolish. I'll say, you know, as a pundit of sure. just doesn't look good. You're trying to, you know, this person supposedly is not a threat, but yet you're going to sue to not have her on the ballot. Right. That's a bad look, you know. If you really think you're more, your team's more qualified, well, let her run and sure. let things happen, you know. And it wasn't like she was off the street; she did have, you know, a case as you eloquently made in court. Oh, right. um, so, so I thought that was sort of foolish. Like, don't do that. Like, just let her run. If the yeah. if the, if the I county assessor assessor, that's why clerk, I stepped up. I, I, that that's exactly why I stepped up on that. Is that some folks have brought. I didn't know her. I'd never met her before. Um, people had come to me with their concerns and had said that she was, you know, a school teacher who had the credential, who had put her name in the hat and had filed her candidate papers to serve as superintendent, and that there was a legal challenge made. And the legal challenge, although it was filed in the name of a local resident, clearly that was not the person really behind the challenge. I, I'm sure she supported the idea of yeah. not having this individual be elected but uh it, it was something that had come from out of our city um with a big big law firm in sacramento who you know does a lot of these types of cases and i looked at it and i said yeah that seems unjust seems like we have outside influence coming to santa barbara trying to influence our elections and and to your point keeping somebody off the ballot is a cheap way to win um if you know competition is healthy I'm certainly a big proponent of that. Um, competition is good for the consumer. Um, and so really there ought to be more choices, not less choices, right? Yeah. <laughs> so they brought me the case and I looked at it and I researched law and I felt strongly that the case was ill-advised, as, as you said, not just politically, but legally, mm -hmm. uh, that they, they did not have solid grounds to challenge this candidacy. What was interesting and maybe not known as much as that, one of the reasons that they argued against uh, Ms. Lozano's name being on the ballot is they said, well, Atherton County, the, the um, Registrar of Voters in Atherton County also had this very same question where they had a teacher who had the credential, had not pulled the credentials yet, uh, because you can't pull them until you have an administrative job. Um, and was trying to run for superintendent. And that registrar of voters made the decision to keep him off the ballot. And so this Sacramento firm had argued in Santa Barbara County that we ought to follow Atherton's lead on that. And um, I had been in touch with the attorney for that candidate, actually. Um, and he had said, well, we're thinking of legally challenging and we're sort of sitting back and waiting to see how you do in your defense of this issue before we file an affirmative claim to get him onto the ballot. 
And so we did go forward and we were successful in defending, you know, in, in defending Joe Holland's position, which was the right position, which was, hey, more candidates, not less. This person is qualified. This person does have the credentials necessary to serve if elected. There is plenty of time for her to pull those credentials if she's elected to the position. So he made the decision to to allow her candidacy to stand. He was vindicated in court. He had made the right choice. The judge agreed uh, with his choice. And then the candidate in Atherton hired me to come up there and to um, to bring an affirmative action challenging that registrar of voters decision. And interestingly, I think that the same firm was involved, though they didn't um, uh, file pleadings in that particular instance. Um, and we were successful there as well. So we were successful in Santa Barbara County, and we were successful in Atherton County to have the candidate's name on the ballot. And I believe that the candidate in Atherton County was elected, mm-hmm. uh, was was successful in that election. Yeah. And people would ask me, they said, well, what, what was the political uh, leanings of that candidate? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was arguing the legal... Uh, propriety of letting the candidate stand. I don't know what what he stood for. I didn't know much about Christy Lozano, what she stood for. I like Christy uh, very much, but it didn't matter to me, and it doesn't matter, and it shouldn't matter mm-hmm. to anybody. I didn't care if she was a, a liberal or uh, a libertarian or an independent or uh, a Republican or or what her her affiliation was. It was just wrong to try to keep her off the ballot. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And I think it was a political misstep because it elevated her status. I mean, all of a sudden people were talking about her and in the game of politics, you don't want people talking about your opponent. No such news is bad news. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Well, I mean, it it made her have, um, you know, uh, uh, the appearance that she was being wrong, that there was was this democratic machine. I would say it wasn't just the appearance. She was being wronged. (laughs) She yeah. was being wrong, and we we righted that. Yeah, and uh, I guess the I question, and the question I guess I want to ask you, John, is is, is uh, you know, you're smart and you know all this stuff, and I know you know you said you you liked Christy, and then afterward you supported her, and you know is is, I mean, when you look at those credentials, or you look at Susan Salcedo's credentials, and years and years of experience. If you take partisan politics out of it, you know, let's she's not a Democrat, but just the experience and you have Christy. I mean, wouldn't you hire Susan? Like would would it isn't that an easy no no disrespect to Christy, but just just on the experience level. No, I would I, I would say that in my career, in my experience, in my life, I have hired many people that were less experienced than other candidates I considered. Yeah. Um, and that they brought fresh perspective to the job. They brought um, creativity that that was lacking in the position. Uh, not not to say that I you know just like I I, I have to admit I wasn't totally involved in this uh, particular office of superintendent prior to being brought in as the attorney to to uh, address the election issue. Um, so I'm not castigating anybody. Uh, but I would push back on the idea that somebody without experience is unqualified, mm-hmm. per se. I disagree with that perception, yeah. right? And if you want to go into Trump, we could certainly no. Let's not do that. <laughs> let's not do that. No, no, no. Um, no, I don't, we don't have time for that. I, I, yeah, exactly. Uh, I don't believe 
that it's simply a question of experience, right? Then it would just be a coronation uh, from one to the other and just pass the baton right down the line of, of administrators that have held the position and had the job for a long time. And it's a social promotion type of a, a position then versus, you know, having candidates that come with different perspectives. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, no, I, 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 I have voted for many candidates over the years who lacked experience yeah. and I've voted for many that had tons of experience. Right. So, okay. All right. Fair enough. Uh, let's, let's shift gears a little bit. Let's talk about you, John. You um, let's go back to the beginning. This is like the flashback in the feature story. If I were writing about you, you know, John Tyne was born in a small town. No, I don't know. Tell me a little about your your upbringing. Boston, not so small. Your upbringing and and how you decided you wanted to go into law. You know, it's it's interesting, and I'm not sure how much time we have, but I uh, I was very fortunate, I would say, that we were very poor when I was born. Uh, And my father um, and my mother got married very young. Um, Dad was not a stellar student, though he was extremely intelligent, or is. My dad's still alive. My mom's still alive. Thank God for for that, for both of them. And they're still together after 56 years of marriage. Um, So not only are they both alive, but they haven't killed each other, which is great. They uh, they married very young, um, both from extremely, um, you know, poor families, I would say. Uh, Dad lived in Roxbury, uh, Massachusetts, which is uh, a not so great area of uh, Boston, although it has gone through a recent renovation and uh, is sort of like Hell's Kitchen did in New York and became actually quite trendy and really nice and all that stuff. But it was not so for many, many years. Uh, and, and mom lived nearby and uh, they met. Um, they actually had met a year before. He asked her to dance. She'd said no. And it was like a year later, he saw her in the, in the same club and asked her to dance. And she was upset with her friends and they wanted to leave. She didn't. So she said yes, only to to be on the dance floor. So they couldn't drag her out of there. Uh, and that, and, you know, one thing led to another and they ended up getting married, you know, 18, 19 years old. Um had me nine months and two weeks after the wedding. Um, so I'm a honeymoon baby. Uh, over the course of the next nine years, they had six children, three boys, three girls, very Brady life. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, dad was loading trucks at Sears Roebuck at the time. And there was a lot of strife. Uh, in, in, in I won't out myself too badly here, I hope on my age, but it was the late 60s. Uh-huh. And there was a lot of labor management disputes and there was a lot of picketing going on. And uh, my dad had had crossed the picket line at the, you know, with the permission of the guys that were picketing. He would literally like work and then come outside and picket with them. But he had to you know support a young family uh, and he couldn't afford not to have the time. Well, he ended up getting promoted uh, because he had a perfect attendance record. And there was a whole long story behind that. He actually went to the union and talked to them and said, hey, I've got this offer of management, but I know that the only reason I'm getting this offer is because you guys have allowed me to cross the picket line. So I'm going to ask for your blessing before I take the job. And so, you know, really smart uh, way to to give credit where credit was due to people. And uh, and there was, you know, we talk about this this fractional interest thing and the, the way that people are pushing back on that. At that time, you didn't hire from within the ranks. You hired graduates out of Harvard and you made them the managers and you let the laborers be the laborers and you didn't make a laborer a manager. 
And there was this forward-thinking um, regional director who said, you know, we have an average lifespan of six months of these managers coming from Harvard. Uh, Sears Roebuck at the time was basically like the Costco uh, or the Amazon of its day. Uh, it was the place that everybody went uh, to do much of their retail. And so this regional director took a chance on hiring somebody from within to the the dismay of all the other regional directors who said, you're crazy, you're a crazy person putting somebody from labor into management and did it. And it worked out brilliantly because my dad was able to bring a, a fresh perspective of labor while also achieving the goals that management wanted. And he had ended up turning around that warehouse from one of the worst performing warehouses in the entire organization to the best mm. uh, in a short period of time. And that sort of launched him. He actually got written up in the trades as a result and got recruited to go to Chicago and work for Ampage Supermarkets and did some great things there and then got recruited to work for First National Supermarkets in Connecticut. And so we went there and uh, eventually he found himself hired by Pepsi-Cola uh, and so he went there and, and he advanced with Pepsi for many years and ultimately became senior vice president of Pepsi-Cola without ever having gone to college. Oh. Meanwhile, my mom raised six children, uh -huh. you know, um, largely by herself, but not really. I mean, dad was there, uh -huh. uh, but she certainly took the, the yeoman's share of that, that work. Uh, and we moved 17 times oh, uh, wow. at that time. My initial, I went to college uh, at the University of Connecticut. Uh, I paid for school myself because by that point, my parents weren't yet um, finished with their journey of like <laughs> Rich is saying. Um, and so uh, I went to the in-state school because we lived in Ridgefield, Connecticut at the time. And I went to um, to become a priest. Uh, I had thought that that's what I would do with my life. Um, I couldn't get past the concept of not having a family, though. Uh, and being married and having children potentially someday. And so I had a priest that I was consulting with at the time who said to me, you know, you can serve the church in many ways without being a, a member of the cloth. And so I decided that the next most noble profession would be medicine. And so I actually graduated with a degree in biology uh, and English. I just couldn't, I couldn't let go of the English language. I just loved literature and poetry and uh, writing and all of that. And so I, I graduated, took, uh, planned on taking the MCATs, um, interned uh, at Hartford Hospital in Connecticut and watched all of these young doctors kind of, you know, not see their kids, cheating on their wives with these nurses, living terribly uh, stressful times and all this stuff. And I said, well, I don't want to give up the priesthood in favor of family and then enter such an anti-family thing now that's the logic of a 20 year old right because i was looking at 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 young doctors in their residencies who were totally overworked anyway uh obviously there's lots of wonderful doctors who don't do those things and don't have that kind of lifestyle but at the time i i i thought it would be antithetical to a family and so I ended up moving home with my parents at that time they lived in Plano Texas so i decided not to sit for the mcats I went home, Plano, Texas, and um, mom at that point said, hey, I've spent 30 years raising children. Uh, I'd like to go and get an education of my own. Mm. She decided to go to the community college in Collin County Community College in Texas. My brother, TJ, who's an actor, he's on the show Bones for 12 years. He's done many movies and lots of television and all that. 
he was in his senior year of high school. And he said, well, mom, I, you know, this is my last year home. I want to spend time with you. So I'll come with you to the community college. And I said, well, guys, I'm home from college, you know, and I want to spend some time. I don't know how long I'll be home. Uh, let me go. So I also went with them to the community college. But the only two classes that I could take that I didn't have already were logic and introduction to law. Uh, and it just turned out that the, you know, I got the highest grade in both classes. The introduction to law professor was a judge. Um, she prevailed upon me to take the law school admission test. She even in the conversation said, listen, I'll pay for it. And I go, no, 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 judge. Uh, you know, I, I've got money. I can pay for it. And I was like, but I can't be a lawyer. I was going to be a priest. Uh, you know, <laughs> I can't go into law. And she's like, no, that's what we need. We need ethical, good people to come into this profession she said you know i'm a judge i can order you to take this test and so <laughs> i uh i said i i appreciate it it's okay i'll take it and so i ended up taking law school mission tests because she told me that she saw something in me that she thought would be you know i'd be very good for this profession and this profession would be good for me and i was fortunate in that i scored in the top four percent of the country and so i um got recruited by you know a number of schools i ended up going not local, but close to the University of Tulsa College of Law because they offered me a year early. So I literally started classes a week after I got my results. And I figured that was a way to get back a year of my life. Mm -hmm. And I had intended to transfer to Yale after my uh, first year um, because they had offered me, uh, well, all the schools had offered the top 5% of the, of the score getters an opportunity to matriculate with them. And I ended up liking Tulsa. I found it was a very easy place to live. I thought the people were very nice there. It was it was a really uh, um, different pace for me. I'd always lived in sort of cities and suburbs of cities, and this was just something altogether different for me. I, it was as far west as I'd ever lived, and it was interesting. And so, yeah, I went to the University of Tulsa College of Law. I was the student bar associate president. I was you know, in the top 10% uh, of my class and uh, did well there, practiced law there for a few years, uh, ultimately went to work for the federal government. And as a young lawyer, that sort of is like dipping your resume in gold. And so I was able to interview all around the country and actually had come out to California to interview with Disney, where my brother, my other brother, not the actor, but the animator, was the supervisor of feature animation. And Went through a couple rounds there, got got right up into it, and uh, they figured the nepotism was too much. And so I answered a classified ad for Santa Barbara, and I saw the town and said, that's it. Oh. That's where the train stops. This is my last move. And wow. 1999. What an amazing story. Like all the different elements that you, you described there from your father and, you know, your mother and your siblings and all your work in the middle. Wow. That's a book. Hopefully you're going to be able to do that someday. Um, hey, I want to ask you about the priesthood. Um, uh -huh. What was it? Did you grow up religious or what, what was it that, that attracted you to that kind of lifestyle to consider that? Well, I mean, I'm an Irish Italian Catholic from Boston. Um, you know, we, we certainly, yes, I grew up uh, religious. I was an altar boy until I was 19 years old. I, when I first moved to Santa Barbara, I was involved with Our Lady of Sorrows Church as a Eucharistic minister for a while, and then a lector, and then on the parish council. And uh, so, yeah, I, I mean, I, I just, you know, I was fortunate not to have a bad experience with religion in my life. I think moving every two years sort of um, 
kept us away from a lot of influences that other people might experience in their life. Uh, and it was always a positive um, place for me. And, and, you know, I think the messages are, are good to, that we are here to make life better for one another and um, compassion and, you know, the Beatitudes, feed the poor, I mean, feed the hungry and shelter the, the unsheltered. And I don't know, I, I was just very, uh, I was a Boy Scout. You know, I was uh, I was the outstanding scout of the year in 1982. I mean, I don't know. It was just the ethos that I grew up with, and I, uh, I yeah, I I think religion can be very positive in people's lives. Yeah. Well, you know, we we've almost been here an hour, John. Let's wrap up. Um, although I think we could probably talk for two hours at least, and we, we should talk do about it how again. I met my wife. That'd be another 20 minutes. <laughs> so. Yes. Well, I do follow you on Facebook, so I do see that yeah. you look very happy, John. I'll we are. That. Um, but, uh, what's next? What are you doing now? Uh, you, you obviously are in a great phase of your life with your expansion, your development, you've been successful a long time, but what are you working on? What, what are we going to be seeing John Tyne focused on in the next few years? You know, I, I, am not sure that I've thought it out, or <laughs> it out that far, you know, um, I, I think Santa Barbara is the most extraordinary county, uh, most extraordinary community that I've been in, in my lifetime. And I've been fortunate to travel the world and uh, and be exposed to a lot of different communities. And I think that this is just an extraordinary, extraordinary place. And all of us that get the opportunity to live here uh, and work here and play here, uh, we're just really among the most fortunate people on earth. Um, and I, I'm, I would say, you know, what's in store is I'm going to continue to do my best to, to pay homage to that by by enjoying it and making it a better community to the best of my ability and whatever form that takes, whether it's helping the person next to me, you know, carry a bag or uh, or do something bigger. I mean, I, I don't have plans for the future necessarily, uh, other than to just continue on the path that has really been so exciting and and. Um, blessed here in town yeah and i'm sure at some point you're going to be some kind of elected official because i know you have that itch and uh when the timing's right you know i'm sure you'll strike so yeah i mean i ran for council in 2009 at that time it, it made sense um it hasn't made sense really since as i mentioned i thought about mayor this this time um but yeah the, the way i see it is what i described earlier though public service is exactly that right it's a it's a service to the public and and if you're going into it for any reason other than that i'm not sure that you're really right for the job so to speak yeah you know hey i don't want to leave what you said hanging in in the context of how you much you valued sort of family why don't you tell us the story a little bit about how you met your wife and oh. how life-changing that life-changing that was for you we can go a little bit longer if you have time or you can uh, yeah, but sure. no if you're if you're okay with it yeah. well, you know i i was with a friend of mine here in santa barbara and um he wanted to take a trip and he wanted to go to russia and i said russia of all places why would you want to go to russia i mean let's go to south america it's it's warm and women don't wear a lot of clothing there um and so uh, he was like no i really want to go there it's it's so historically significant there's a it's a good time right now this was 2007 you know, when relations were better. Um, and so I, you know, I said, okay. And I was traveling with my friend and we went to Moscow and we spent several days there, but we found that we were two young 
dumb American guys in a foreign speaking country that didn't know anything. And so we ended up um, hiring a tour guide. Uh, and when we hired the tour guide, it changed everything, our entire experience. So Moscow was much, much better because we had somebody who lived there who happened to speak English uh, and Russian, who was able to show us the city and show us things we never would have found on our own. So when we went to St. Petersburg, we did the same. We hired a tour guide and that tour guide happened to be Alasia. And so, you know, obviously uh, there was an initial interest on my part that, you know, she's just a stunningly beautiful woman. But but I tell people all the time, you know, who say how pretty she is. I say, it's true. She's she's stunningly gorgeous, but that's about the fourth best thing about her, you know. Uh, and that was true. I just found her just so uh, interesting and knowledgeable and her English was perfect. And I came to learn later uh, that she had taught herself how to speak English. It wasn't formal study or anything. She literally taught herself using song lyrics and a dictionary. Oh. Um, and so anyway, I'd asked her on a date. We 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 went out I, and she said yes. And then I said, well, can you bring a friend for my friend? And she said, OK. And so. <laughs> We went on a double date that night and she and I ended up walking around until four in the morning, uh, touring the city and talking. And we spent several days just kind of talking and getting to know each other and stuff. And then I went back to America and we, you know, this was 07. So there was no Facebook or Skype or any of that. Mm -hmm. And we just were friends. We just would email and, and all that. And we stayed in touch over email over the years. And eventually Facebook came around and Skype came around and, um, we found ourselves three years later, both single, and we started talking again, and we started doing what you and I are doing now, not to say that things are going to go the same direction with you, um, but we were we were essentially Zooming, Skyping at the time, and we spent several months doing that and decided we should see each other again, and we, we ended up meeting in Barcelona and going over Rome, and we spent a, the year of 2010 just sort of meeting in all these wonderful places around the globe um and so she would fly from russia so she'd fly from russia to dubai i flew from america to dubai and then we went from there to the maldives and uh and <clears throat> eventually um you know i i proposed and she was kind enough to say yes and step <laughs> up in my life's game so uh, she's been here you know 10 years we've been married for 10 years now she's been here 11 years oh, wow. for 10 years and it's been just amazing she's i mean she's you met her but the people who really know her well know that she's just incredibly kind and funny and intelligent and obviously very beautiful but just a, a, a an amazing person and a great partner in life yeah that's great it's so 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 cool that that worked out for you and aren't you glad that you didn't become a priest you must be, th be thankful every day now well and that's why i didn't yeah. become a priest, right it's because i felt that i wanted ultimately to have a family so yeah Yep. Well, John, this has been such a pleasure to have this conversation long overdue. And I really appreciate you. I know you're super busy taking the time to have this and, you know, we should do it once a year and just sort of touch base. You know, we just punditry. I just throw all these issues at you and you can tell me what you think because it's fascinating. So, but thank you, John, and good luck with everything. Thank you, Josh. It's always a pleasure to see you. And I, I, I'm hopeful that I will see you soon. All right. Take care. Okay. Thank you. Bye.